This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Hey, before the show begins, I have to tell you about this amazing new app, but you guys may already know about it, YouTube Music. They combine everything that you would expect from a streaming service with the magic of YouTube to bring everything to life. With YouTube Music Premium, you'll get ad-free music that plays with the screen off or while using other apps. Get music wherever you want it, even if you're offline. Download the new YouTube Music app today and start a free 30-day trial. Then just pay $9.99 per month. Term and restrictions, of course, apply, but you don't need to be concerned about that because you'll be listening to incredible music with YouTube Music. Download that app now. It's amazing. Do it up. Now here's the show. Hello, everybody. How are you doing this fine afternoon or evening or morning or whatever time it is that you're listening to this? I hope you're well. I'm Ray Harkins. We're hanging out on a special series of this podcast called 100 Words or Less. But this in particular is kind of like a little offshoot, an imprint record label, as it were. This show is called Be Specific. And this is an idea I've been kicking around in my head for quite some time. I'll tell you more about it and the guest in a moment. But you are into bands, right? You like band merch. You, sh- you should. I love band merch. I've got like, I've never even counted the amount of band shirts that I have, but I probably have over 365. So like I could wear a different shirt each day of the year. Uh, even if I dove into my, you know, archives that might be a little too small for me, but you know, it still works. Rockabilia.com is your place where you can stock up and c- build your own collection of shirts. And what's even cooler is during Halloween time, which is what we are experiencing now in October and the fall. They've got a ton of like, you know, sort of Halloween theme merch and costumes and masks from like Ghost, Iron Maiden, Misfits, Queen, Rob Zombie, you name it, they got it. And they also have, you know, some bands that are Halloween themed as it were, like, you know, King Diamond, Misfits, Motionless and White, you get the deal. So go to rockabilly.com and use the code PCJabberJaw. That will give you a 15% discount and you can order to your heart's content. It will ship to you fast. It will ship to you with friendly customer service. It will ship to you as an independent business because that's what it is. I love the company so much. They're just, they're just great human beings. They are a professional company and they have so many options for you to buy band merch. Okay. Rockabilly.com, PCJabberJaw, the only place that you should be doing that. Okay. Okay, good. But what am I here to tell you about is this idea of the show. So you listen to a lot of podcasts, I'm guessing. I do too. I listen to, you know, uh, probably an inordinate amount. I would say 80% of my listening audio time is consumed with either audiobooks or podcasts, and the other 20% is records. And so, you know, I understand it's an imbalance, but, you know, that's just the way that life is. I am not listening to 80% music and 20% podcasts, but. That's neither here nor there, but I listen to a lot of uh, music-based podcasts, and I think the thing that I have been craving myself is, uh, you know, when people are talking about like sort of the music industry and the music business as a whole, a lot of the times people aren't specific. And, you know, I don't, I'm not talking about like specific as far as like, you know, being mean to people or like, you know, <laughs> like outing, um, you know, certain, uh, bands that are, you know, not as cool as other bands or whatever. Like, I'm not looking for drama per se. I'm just looking for like actual numbers. Cause like people are scared to talk about numbers and like money, like, you know, things get weird when you kind of combine that, 
and art and commerce and like how those things meet. And so I've had this idea kicking around my head for a while. And then I was like, you know what? I'm going to approach some friends who I, I trust and who I know will speak candidly to me about their experiences in the music industry. And uh, that is exactly how this came together. So all during the month of October, I'm sharing you these conversations that are a little bit different than what you typically would hear on the, uh, you know, kind of quote unquote regular episode of 100 Words or Less. This, uh, this is more directional. This is like speaking specifically about, you know, whether it's tours, whether it's about like management of bands, whether it's like working at record labels. And it's not just being like, oh, how do you put out records or like, you know, the sort of generic uh, kind of conversations you may have. These are definitely just like you know, getting into the weeds in a way. And like not get into the weeds where you like, if you don't care about the music industry, it'll be lost. It's like, oh, wow, I didn't know that a band got paid this much money to do a show or something like that. So I just think that that information should be shared, um, you know, freely. There should be transparency in that. Like, I don't think that there is any, um, there should be any misgivings on the pe- the idea that people make money off of independent music. That is a reality, you know, whether you're working at a record label and you're not making, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in independent music. Some people do, but that's not the common experience. So I just want to kind of, you know, get that information out there and like get people comfortable about talking with that sort of stuff. Cause I think a lot of people are really cagey and I just don't, uh, I've never understood that. Like if someone directly asks me, uh, and as long as it's an appropriate context, I will share pretty much any information that people ask me, you know, like I'm not going to broadcast that publicly across the board, like unequivocally, but anyways, let's, let me, let me bring us back. The guest is Shane told Shane is the lead singer of a band called Silverstein. He is also the host of an amazing podcast called lead singer syndrome. I've been a guest on it and, uh, he just, he does, does a very similar thing to what hundred words is doing, except he focuses on lead singers and he has very fun conversations on that. I really enjoy his show. So I, I thought of Shane kind of immediately because I was like, well, he, he's been doing this for a while and Silverstein is, is such an anomaly within the context of independent music because they have, you know, ridden through the trends. They have sonically changed over time, but not like changed to the point of where you don't even recognize the band. It's like, no, they've just kind of morphed and, and evolved as, you know, adults do when they're writing music together. But Shane was just a person that popped in my mind right away because he, um, you know, he's interested in the business side of things and has been navigating his band through that. And, you know, all the rest of his members have been doing the same. So I was like, you know what? I want to talk to Shane about the business of being in a band, like what that looks like when things, you know, start to get real, when like the band all of a sudden is making, you know, a thousand dollars a night on a tour. And you have to think about like, you know, we, we talk about sharing stories of like, oh yeah, like what do you do when you have this much cash on you and you're just rolling around in a van? Like it's crazy, but that happens all the time. So anyways, we get really specific and he shares a lot of cool insights and stories about uh, the band's life that I think even if you hate Silverstein, you will learn something from this. Okay. Anyways, long preamble, but I just wanted to kind of set the tone for the rest of the episodes. But uh, yeah, thank you very much, Shane. I really appreciate it. It was fun to do this with you. And now here is Be Specific, okay? And I'll talk to you after the episode is over. Set up the next episode. That's what we do here, okay? You know, I think I'm a good person to have 
uh, you know, uh, as a part of this because I really don't care, right. you know, anyways. I'll, like, I'll tell anyone anything. Like, right. What's the big deal? Yeah. What am I trying to hide, you know? Well, I, uh, you'd be, you'd be, you'd be, sh- you'd be surprised because I think it's, uh, well, no, you wouldn't be surprised. You understand. But, like, there are certain people where it's like, uh, and not like I went at a ton of people and they were like, no, I don't want to talk about that. But, like, because I, you know, you like myself, like, you know, you got a good idea of what people would be good for something like this. But, uh, yeah, there are just some people who are just, anytime you talk about finances or anything like that, people just get weird. They feel, they feel like they, I don't know, they like have some informational advantage over people or something. I don't know. Yeah, I totally, totally know what you mean. But I, I, it's funny when you talk about these, these specific numbers and I kind of smile to myself because I think of specific things. Like I remember, you know, it's always tough when you're a new, a new band on the road and you go out on a tour for a long period of time and you add up the money at the end and you go, huh? Like we, we made way less than minimum wage per person for how long we were out here on the road, you know, like right. way less money. Like we could have done, I could have been a, a paper boy at home and made way more bank, you know? And I, I love that. And I remember the first time Silverstein ever made money, we'd done a tour with From Honor to Ashes and it was like kind of our first big support we ever got. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think we were we were second of five and that led in right into another tour with Strike Anywhere, which was a band we all loved so much. That was the, that was the best people. Yeah, to interrupt your train of thought, that was actually yeah. where I first met. Like, because I mean, I you know I knew of you guys by that point, but like you when you played Chain Reaction with Strike Anywhere, that's where Bill came up to me and was like, "Dude, you're Ray from Taken." And then I was like, "I really, yeah." And so that that was kind of how I first. <laughs> that's how basically I got brought into your guys's orbit, where I was like, "Oh yeah, not only these dudes like you know fans of Taken or whatever." Like I knew that, but like I didn't know you guys as individuals. But yeah, that's so funny. I love that. Yeah, but but I remember so so we'd been touring for pretty much well it'd been over a year and hadn't made a dime, you know. And I remember we had it was the end of the tour and we had and I counted up all the money and we had seven thousand um, dollars. I remember that number because I left it in a hotel room. <laughs> That's how I remember that that was the number in, in a silver briefcase that we used to carry around. I don't know why we thought that was a good idea. Like, I think we thought we were cool, yeah. you know, carrying around in, in, in something that obviously looked like, the, like a briefcase full of money. Uh, yeah. But I left it in a motel six. I'm going to just going to say it was in Dallas. It sure. was, it was a major, a major city somewhere in, in the South and I remember, you know, this is before there was like, any kind of cell phones. We didn't have anything like that. Mm-hmm. So we, we <laughs> I didn't know. I knew I left it. Like, you know, you have that realization where you're like, oh, my God, where's the, where's the briefcase? Did you did you grab it? No. And I'm like, it's under the bed in the hotel room. Oh, my God. And we've been dri- already been driving for, I don't know, like an hour and a half probably. But the thing was is the night before – we just driven and grabbed like any motel six that we saw, you know, cause they were all like, whatever, like 49 bucks. So I couldn't remember which one. So we had a motel six 
directory in our van, which had like the, there's probably 1500 motel sixes in America. So I had to go through Dallas and all the suburbs and call each one. And then finally, like I, I, a bunch of them were like, uh, what briefcase, what band? And then after probably like the sixth or seventh one, I called the people were like, yep, we got it. Like, okay, we're coming back. And I walked in and, and it's kind of good that we had a briefcase that locked because at least they didn't know that it was $7,000 in there. Cause if we put it in just like a gym bag or something, right. They can easily open. So yeah. So, yeah. so there you go. That, that's always the, the, the bittersweet nature of, uh, of what, you know, I, I do and have done for 15 years is, is, Oh, look, something good happened. Oh, something terrible happened directly <laughs> after. <laughs> Dude, that's amazing. I love yeah, that you saying that that really triggers the idea of like once you started to like actually have cold hard cash in your van, and then you had to start to you know you had to figure out ways to like you know either depositing it at a bank or like figuring out the logistics of like how you can take care of that money because like you know you're you're a child you don't have any real idea of like what to do with that money so it makes sense where you're like yeah I'm gonna put that in a silver briefcase. <laughs> Yeah, we used to do this thing where every time we had a thousand dollars that I guess we like above our float, we would take the thousand dollars and put it in an envelope and seal it, and then that was our way of depositing it in some weird way. I guess we knew that that nobody could like you know either go in and just be like, hey, I need I need you know ten bucks for a energy drink or something ridiculous. It was like that's our way of putting it away, but it was it was so stupid because obviously we didn't you know. I don't know. It was so ridiculous that 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 was our mentality. But the other thing was we're Canadian. So when we're on a tour for six weeks in in America, like none of us have bank accounts and we didn't have the savviness to figure out how to get an American bank account. Uh, And, and, you know, post 9-11, they were worried about terrorism and all that stuff. And you couldn't just send money across the border anymore. And you still can't. Mm -hmm. It's still a problem. It's still a problem, to be honest. So, so yeah, that, that is, you know, that's a real thing that happened carrying around a lot of money in a, anyone could smash it. If they knew what was in there, it'd be very easy just to smash the window and open the door and be like jackpot, you know? Totally. Just a cut. Yeah. A couple, couple grand from like, you know, some dumb late teens, early twenties kids just you know, tried to try to sell merch and, you know, making $150 a show where it's like, oh, you know, especially too. When you, you know, you're, you're taking all of these things as far as like, you know, merch and like, essentially it's all on credit. Like, you know, you have to pay that back once you return and right. you know, that sort of money where it's like, like, you know, the squirreling away of a thousand dollars in each, um, envelope, you know, that, that is a way to, you know, obviously signify like, we can't touch that because that is like, that's really not even our money because we have to pay, yeah. you know, yeah. booking agent management, all that other stuff. Like that's not even real money. That's just money that goes out immediately. No, no, totally. And, and we've always been a band that's been aware of that. Uh, we've always paid our, you know, paid our debts on time and, uh, you know, that stuff's always been, we've always been really good about that. But I mean, we've also, you know, it also took us only a year to be able to start being like, holy shit, we're actually making money. Whereas a lot of bands sort of years and years and years go by and they get home and they say, huh, I made $15 a day yeah. <laughs> for the last, you know, three, four or five weeks. And it's like, great. Now what? Okay. 
I eat Taco Bell on the road, I'm going to eat Taco Bell at home because that's all I can afford. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> it, it is especially crushing when you do, like you said, kind of parse it out in your head of the time invested versus time earned. And like, I, you know, I so distinctly remember myself when I was going through, when I did that sound and fury festival for a couple of years, it was one of those things where, you know, at the end of it, there was this lump sum money where it's like, you know, whatever, 10 grand, 15 grand, whatever it was. But then, you know, I'm dividing that with another partner. And then I'm also dividing it. Like you said, you know, if you're looking at the time spent on it, like, I mean, it not only is it below minimum wage, but you're just like, yeah, I, I think it's literally like a dollar an hour, you know, like it just doesn't. Like, yeah. But yeah. for for you guys, like, when, you know, as you started to kind of, you know, come up and start to have those moments of like you were saying, you know, the, the from Nashes and Strike Anywhere tours, like as you started to, you know, like come home with with uh, with actual cash, like, do you remember any more of those sort of anecdotal moments of like, oh, wow, like, you know, this is either the highest sort of guarantee that we are getting it, not even really maybe on like a headlining run or something like that. Um, but something where it was like, it, it felt like not only from a, you know, kids showing up at the show perspective, but a business perspective that it really felt like, Oh geez, I like, I didn't think that we were, were here, but I, I guess we are here. Totally. I have so many, you know, interesting stories and think, things I think about, but one of my favorite is, is it was beginning of 2006 and we had jumped on the Taste of Chaos tour. And this was kind of the point. This this year was the, the year that the Deftones headlined. Mm-hmm. So they'd already done the kind of really bigger, iconic ones where they had the used and My Chemical Romance had headlined. And this was when they were, you know, kind of just, just getting their stride. But, I mean, the tour wasn't going to last much longer. And, you know, that was in arenas. So the tour had already been going on for probably three or four weeks and we jumped on just to do the Canadian dates and we, we didn't open, but we were very early on the bill. I think it was like dredge was the opening band and then us. And then I remember after us was like, uh, as they lay dying played and thrice and Thursday and Atreyu and then Deftone. So those, those were the bands and we knew some of them, but we were still, you know, a newer band. We hadn't really gotten too much hype yet. Our, our kind of our second record had just gotten a little bit. So we rolled in, and the first show was in Vancouver, or somewhere on the Canadian West Coast. So you know, they set us up, and we had merch restrictions where we were only allowed to sell, I think, two or three shirts, shirt designs, and Deftones. You know, had this wall of merch. So we weren't exactly we were pretty low on the totem pole, and not getting a ton of respect. So I remember that was when it hit me like, okay, people care about my band because we were selling shirts when we were playing because we were playing so early in the bill. We were playing and there was a lineup of people buying our merch. Right. That doesn't even make any sense. No, you're like, why why are you not watching us? We are literally playing. Yeah. yeah, Our merch guys like they have a 25 minute set. Like go get in there. You can get the shirt later. What are you doing? And so, you know, as many, you know, industry people listening to this and probably a lot of non-industry people listening to this know bands have to pay at what's called a merch rate. So, you know, it's usually in a bigger venue, it, it could be 20, even 25%. Um, and a lot of times with a, a festival, you know, style, one merch guy, usually the headliner will collect from all the bands and then they'll pay the venue. 
And the thing about merch rate is that everyone lies about it. So no, unless they count every shirt that you bring in the venue, nobody actually pays what they say. Mm-hmm. And I don't even know if, if anyone's ever spoken about that on the record, but that's true. Yeah. You know, if you can, if like, you can get around it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, but at the same time, I think when you're doing something like that, whether it's uh, something like warp tour or whatever, everyone's in on it together. So we never lie about our numbers when it's like, what did you do? Hey, what did you do? Oh, what did we do? Okay. We did this much. Okay. Well, this is what we're going to tell the, the man, you know? So, the Deftones merch guy came up to our merch guy on the first day and said, uh, Hey, um, uh, what did you guys sell, uh, you know, for the merch guy? So our merch guy says, Oh, we did like 15. And he, and he says 15. Oh, okay. Okay, cool. Uh, just, uh, just give me, uh, just give me a hundred, hundred bucks is fine. <laughs> and our merch guy goes, okay. Right. Gives him a hundred bucks. So the next day, we roll into Calgary or whatever. Same thing. People are in line buying merch. It's like crazy. We can't believe it. And uh, <laughs> and the merch and it wasn't as big a show as, as Vancouver the night before. And uh, our merch guy, uh, same thing, comes up. The, the Deftones guy comes up and he goes, "Oh, what did you what did you do?" He goes, "Oh, we did a little bit less. We did like nine. And he goes, nine. You guys look busy. Like only nine hundred bucks." So like, no, no, nine thousand. <laughs> And he goes, what? We're like, yeah. Not, and, and he's, what did you do yesterday? We're like 15,000. He's like, you did 15,000. And we had beaten Deftones wow. in merch. That, sure. And, 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 and only paid $100 in merch rate as well. And I think that that was sort of for the long-winded story, but that was when we were like doing, you know, upwards of 10, 15. I think in Toronto and Montreal, we did like 20,000 in merch. And it was like crazy, you know, just having this little tiny trailer full of T-shirts, you know, filled up to the top and having a shipment every day. It was just, that was crazy. Yeah. Crazy. <laughs> well, remembering that. And, and especially, especially too, I, I don't think there's anything more interesting than being on a tour and like either you're in the situation where you're in, where, you know, you're playing with these, you know, legendary bands and, you know, you're, yeah. you're selling more merch and like, you know, maybe you're having, you know, you're drawing younger kids to the show and everything of why people would want a band like Silverstein on a show like that is exactly what's happening. But then on the flip side, it's also interesting when you're like, you know, maybe you're the headliner and you're watching this other band kind of like just meteorically rise of like, and the headliner's like, oh, we shouldn't headline anymore. And then you try to figure out how that, that could possibly be switched, you know, in the middle of a tour because this band is blowing <laughs> up and like, you can't even, like, I, yeah. I remember with, uh, I was on tour with Makoto and we were on tour with Calico System on Eulogy mm-hmm. Records and Chiodos. And this was Chiodos like on the first, you know, Equal Vision yeah. record. And it was, Calico System was headlining. And it was like, you know, we, we'd done like three dates in California and it was very much that scenario of just like, oh my God, like Chiodos is doing, you know, like $2,000 in merch a night and all of these children are here to see them. And Calico System is like, we cannot play last. Like there's a difference between headlining and playing yeah. last and we are playing last right now. And, but yeah, like to your point of just that, that feeling of like, oh my gosh. And just watching that kind of swirl around feels really, really weird. Yeah. And, and it wasn't. I don't think we were anywhere near, not, you know, I don't want people to think that I thought we were bigger than Deftones no, are. Or, no, no, no. Or we, we weren't even, we weren't even 
you know, drawing that many people. I just think it was that every single person, we'd never really played on the East Coast, uh, West Coast of Canada before. So every single person that came out had never seen this before and they just wanted a fucking t-shirt to be cool, you know, or whatever. I think that that was more what it was because we sure we have, we have nights we do really well in merch, but to, to be doing, to be doing 15 to 20 every night is a lot of money. Uh, and I would love to do 15 to 20 grand a night now. Uh, you know, yeah, but, but I, I love that. And, and it's funny that you bring up the, you know, the Chiodos thing. I forget who I had on my podcast, but somebody said that the same thing happened and it was panic at the disco was playing first. <laughs> right. And halfway through the tour, they're all over MTV, you know, and uh, TRL and all that. And it's like, we got to do something like, you know, we got to do something because people are not going to stick around for, for us yeah it's like the you know when when the plans were hatched six months ago things were very different and then now that we're in the reality it's like oh we got to figure this out like you know yes we'll take you know a thousand dollars less a night on our guarantee because we, we just we we don't want to play in front of four people at the end of the night that just feels not only wrong but it's you know it's a little sad when you're in that position and you're like i just want to play in front of some people capitalize on this oh, to- oh totally and my friend my buddy um Posted just yesterday, and then I'm going to pull it up because it's, it's so good to talk about this. And it's one of those, you know, old, like a weekly magazine. He's from Ohio. He's from Columbus, Ohio. And, you know, it's this is from, well, it's from 2006, I know, because I remember uh, some of these tours. And, you know, it has the bands that, who was headlining, who was playing under them. And, you know, seeing some of these ones here, um, you know, uh, like... And some of the bands that have fallen by the wayside, but here, here's one that goes to what I was saying. This is the Academy is with, with panic at the disco acceptance and hello. Goodbye. That was the tour that happened. Nice. You know, with panic at the disco playing under the Academy is, but my favorite on here is this tour is the headliner is the Veronica's with October fall and Jonas brothers. Wow. <laughs> so crazy. <laughs> The Jonas Brothers, and this is 06, February 11th, 06, at the basement in Columbus, Ohio. And that and that was like, I didn't even know the Jonas Brothers were actually a band that did, like, tours. tours. Like, right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Totally, totally. Yeah, you feel, so, you feel like these, these, you know, bands or artists that just, you know, have so much cachet because of the other things that they've done, like, you know, they don't need to exist in the scene and, you know, play DIY shows. And then, like, it's like, oh, no, like, some people have to do that. <laughs> And it, it, for a good reason, because otherwise they'll probably be terrible if they, you know, play TRL as their first show. <laughs> I, I know, I know. It's, just, it's a wild, wild thing. Um, and so, you know, at, like most people, especially from like a, a, a touring perspective, um, you know, you see, and I know I've seen in the past as well, um, a lot of bands are, you know, irresponsibly spending on um, not only their own personal expenses, but then when it comes to, you know, tour budgets and when you're working on like, all right, how much crew are we going to take out? Um, yeah. You know, how, like, should we travel on a bus or a van? And like, you know, those sort of things, um, you know, how, like, and you guys, you know, like you've mentioned previously, and it, it's evidence of you guys still existing as a band uh, that, you know, you've been very frugal and have made, uh, you know, good moves from that perspective. Um you know, can you, can you name an instance where you were, you know, you guys were really wrestling around with a certain decision in regards to like, you know, a tour budget, like, Oh, should we do this? Should we do that? Um, and then kind of on the flip side, 
a, um, you know, a poor decision you guys made mm-hmm. it was like, Oh, we ended up doing this. And then like, now we ended up regretting it for one reason or another. It doesn't have to be particularly for finances per se, but um, right, right. Well, it, it all comes down to finances, everything true. that you do pretty much in a band. But the, the my favorite of, of all these things is, is I'm sure I know, you know what it is. And most people listening to this in the industry know what a bandwagon is. And bandwagons haven't existed very long. You know, they're kind of like, for people that don't know, they're like small buses. They kind of have all the good things about a bus. Like they have a shower and you have bunks and a place to sleep, but they're not super big and they're pretty bumpy and they're not the best. Buses are much better, but they're also considerably cheaper. But before bandwagons existed, you pretty much were either in a full-on bus or you got a driver you have to pay and pay overdrives and pay for their hotel and then all, all the fuel and everything. Uh, or you're in a van, which is you're driving yourself. There's nowhere to lay down. You know, it's a van. And those were the options. So, you know, as, as all bands with, with the, you know, veteran bands like Silverstein, they go through ups and downs. And we've... I guess we can be proud to say we haven't done a van tour since 2005. We've either done buses or bandwagons since then, but we got to a point where we sort of realized that we were going to do a bus tour and we weren't going to make any fucking money, you know, because we were supporting. I don't remember who it was. Sure. Are you there, right? I am. I'm sorry, you are there. You were so quiet. It was like, am I talking to myself for five minutes? No. And uh, so, so, we ran the budgets and we were with this company called Northern Gold. They were a small bus company and they're great, great people. And they only had three or four buses as I recall. But what we liked about them is they used to make us bread and soup every morning. The wow. driver would wake up and make wow. bread and soup in the morning. It was great. That's amazing. So, right. So we ran the budgets and it was like, Oh man, like, do we really want to go back to a van? Cause you get to a certain level of comfort and it's hard to go back. And this was 2010. And what's the point of this whole story is Silverstein was actually the first band ever to be on a bandwagon. We were the first band because this company, Northern gold turned into bandwagon. And I'll never forget the email I got from Paul that said it was, it was subject line weird bus. And it was this, it was a bandwagon and it looked pretty much the same as they look now. And, we said, huh, okay, well, I don't know. Let's give this a shot. So uh, we, this company kind of, we were the guinea pigs for the first ever bandwagon, and that would have been in 2010. And we, uh, That's amazing. Yeah. So, so <laughs> and it's funny because we've, you know, we've still taken, uh, taken those things out and, and, you know, for years and years and years, and they are pretty solid, and I wish we got the grandfathered in rate from 2010. We do not. But, uh, but yeah, there, yeah, there's another interesting tidbit. We're the first band to be on a bandwagon. Oh, yes. Our good friends Casper are here to tell you about how awesome their mattress is. But no, that's not their job. That's my job because I legit love my Casper. Now, what are they? It is a sleep brand that continues to revolutionize its line of products to create an exceptionally comfortable sleep experience one night at a time. So they have three models, the original Casper, which is what I have, the Wave, and the Essential. Their mattresses are perfectly designed to soothe and cradle your natural geometry. Not to mention, super breathable design, helps you sleep cool, regulates your body temperature throughout the night, and is delivered to your door in a small, how do they even fit that in there, size box. 
free shipping, and returns in the U.S. and Canada. The best part is that you can be sure of your purchase with Casper's 100-night risk-free sleep-on-it trial. After all, you spend one-third of your life sleeping, so you should be comfortable. I love my Casper. I've loved my Casper ever since I've got it. I sleep so soundly on it. My wife sleeps soundly on it. Anytime my son sneaks into the bed with us, he sleeps soundly. But real talk, Casper is the best. I Anytime anybody asks me about my mattress, my mattress experience, I'm like, that you don't even need to look in any other direction besides Casper. So get $50 towards select mattresses by visiting casper.com slash words and using words at checkout. That's casper.com slash words, offer code words, and I will give you $50 off your first mattress purchase. Terms and conditions, of course, apply, but Casper is the best. Casper.com slash words. I love them. They'll make you sleep better, Okay. Now on with the show. And kind of the second part of the question of like, is there a decision that you guys made that you were like, you know, retroactively it would have been like, oh, wow, I wish we would have handled that uh, differently. Uh, I mean, I'm sure there's obviously a lot, but, um, you know, something that kind of pops out in your head. I think I think anytime we've taken a support tour and then we've got there and realized we should have been headlining it or the headlining band wasn't worth anything. Uh, and I don't want to throw anybody under no. the bus specifically. Um, but again, I guess the statute of limitations, uh, as you say, I could probably at least talk about one incident. Sure. And this was actually right before that Taste of Chaos tour. We had taken the Take Action tour, which was which is funny because it's on this list I just talked about. And it was Matchbook Romance was the headlining band. Mm, and yeah. we were direct spirit, direct support. And also early November was there. Amber Pacific. I remember Paramore was on a few shows, which is funny. And that was when where we got there and we, we were playing direct support second last and everyone was leaving after we were playing mm-hmm. and we were only getting paid like a thousand bucks a show or something like that. And everybody was leaving and it was like, we were, you know, still our friends with matchbook romance and we felt bad, but what are you supposed to do? We're not going to switch places. We're like, well, okay, we'll, we'll play last, but we're going to have to switch money too, you know? Totally. So it was, that was one of those very you know, awkward, awkward decisions. And looking back now, I think when you do that, I think every band that attains a certain level of success, that has to happen at some point in their touring career. If it doesn't happen, well, you're either a genius or really lucky, or, yeah. or, you're pro- or you're probably not taking up, up as many opportunities as you should. So that happened to us a few times, but and at the time we felt like it was a regret and we felt like, what are we doing here? This is stupid. We, we should be on tour with this band or this bigger band that we get in front of their fans. You know, what is our manager doing or what is our, why isn't our label fighting for us? And, but now looking back, I think that those are necessary steps and it's good to be, sometimes it's good to be that kind of underdog. Yeah. Well, it's also interesting that you bring up that tour because I think that that example is kind of a confluence of events because I think, if I'm not mistaken, that was the last year the Take Action Tour put something out. And, you know, from a previous, whatever, you know, three or four year run where it was successful, if not a little bit longer. But, like, you always, you run into those, you know, packaged, branded tours that, you know, are are hot for, you know, year after year. And then eventually it hits a wall where it's like, okay, either the package doesn't make sense. And like, you know, like you were saying, right. headliners are strong. And then all of a sudden everybody has to like reevaluate and figure it out. So like that, you know, mm-hmm. that was just what you guys experienced where it was like, oh yeah, like maybe just 
kids aren't coming to these type of shows anymore. Like, no, you know, you know, it wasn't that the, sh- the kids were coming out. We, we, the shows okay. were great. I mean, we, we played the house of blues in Orlando. It's a big, you know, bigger house of blues. It was sold out. The problem was after we played, everybody left. Everybody left. Yeah, sure. You know, and, and we, we were like, Oh great. Well, we're, we're playing, we're doing a headline tour basically, but only playing for 40 minutes and not getting paid <laughs> nearly what we should. So that was more the, the issue, you know? Right. Uh, but no, actually, Tasty Chaos, that was kind of, I'd say, the heyday. No, we'll And there it. were many, many take actions after that. And uh, Oh, it's a, oh, you, oh, you mean Tasty Chaos? No, 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 no. Well, you said Tasty Chaos, but I was like, oh, take action. So that, because that was, what, what year was that? The, was that 2000? 2000, 2006. 2006, uh, okay. So yeah, I guess it did we, go for We ended up doing take action again in 2011. We co headlined with uh, Bayside. Oh, that's right. Uh, yeah, so I don't know how many years they ran Take Action, or I think it came, it left for a bit, it came back, but uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know if the branded tour thing works anymore, to be honest with you. Yeah, no, it's, it is, uh, yeah, it's really tough, because <laughs> I, I think that, it, it, I mean, that was such a in vogue thing to do in the early 2000s and mid-2000s, and then, um, yeah, I think people... Um, especially because, you know, each band and, you know, record label or whatever promotional arm to promote the tours, like, you know, they're just as strong as brands, but, you know, everybody kind of viewed a brand as being like, Oh, well, they're going to be the one that's like doing a lot of marketing for a tour beyond just us. So it's like, here's this other entity that will help bring people to the show. And then, yeah. Then, yeah. then when people were inventing brands out of nowhere where it's like, Oh, let's just name this tour something cool. And then we'll do it again. it's like, well, yeah, you're just making something up out of nothing, well, you know, which is how most things start. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> no, we were the, and we were also the band that they branded scream it like you mean it around. That was our thing. The first year we did. And that's coincidentally, that's the, uh, the, the first tour we had the bandwagon for. So, uh, you know, back in 2010, but I, I know what you mean. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, no, that's right. I, t- I totally forgot Scream It Like You Made It. That I <laughs> There's so many remember, Yeah. Do you remember cool, the Cool Tour? Do you remember that? I, t- I do remember the Cool Tour. Yeah. What the hell branding is that? Cool Tour. <laughs> I did, and it just shook loose in my head, too. They had the, was it the, the 10 for 10 tour? Where it was like 10 bands for yeah. 10, 10 bucks. And it was like, you know, obviously all like hardcore bands. But yeah, that was cool. That, that was, was cool. Yeah, and it was like, you know, someone's taking a bath on it. But like, you know, that's cool. Like. Yeah. <laughs> right. How? Yeah. How would you do that? I man, that's, that's you, you so much Taco Bell dollar menu is being eaten on that tool. Well, I think it was basically probably just a bunch of sponsors underwriting it. You know, where it's like, okay, this is how the bands are actually going to get paid because they're not going to get paid from the door. That's for sure. <laughs> right. Uh, the, uh, the last two things I wanted to kind of bring up before I let you go sure. was the. Um, you know, the kind of like what we were sort of dancing around earlier where, you know, what, what sort of numbers stick out in your head where, you know, like you were saying the sort of, you know, whatever the $7,000 you left by at a hotel or, you know, the, the $15,000 you guys did in merch at Taste of Chaos. Like, do you have any other kind of numbers if, if, if from like a guarantee perspective um, yeah. or, or something that was kind of like you said, where it was just surprising to you guys? Because, you know, I, from all that I know of you as individuals, like, you know, you are have a, uh, a healthy ego about yourselves. And like, I mean that where it's like, you can make fun of yourselves and then you can also be like, Oh wow. Like I'm, I'm so glad we're doing this, you know? Um, so I'm not, I, I'm giving you that window. So it's like, you know, you can, you can, uh, humble brag about <laughs> a certain thing. Like that where it's like, Oh wow. Like, I can't believe that we got that. 
uh, or we, or we did this thing in particular? Yeah, no, a few things come to mind. I think at one point early in our career, we played at uh, the Starland Ballroom in New Jersey, and we had the highest guarantee of, of the tour, and it was, I think it was a, it was seventeen thousand five hundred dollars was I think the guarantee, which you know for us to do a headline show was you know great and a lot of money, and I was nervous because I was like. That's a lot. I like really don't want someone to like lose their ass, you know, yeah. for our band. <laughs> totally. You know, like, like I, I was nervous about it and the, the, it's a weird, I don't know if you've ever been to Starland Ballroom. It's a weird venue. Cause it, when you walk in there, you'd never be like, Oh yeah, this is 2,500 cap room. Like it doesn't feel like it, it feels very small. Mm-hmm. And I remember we didn't sell the show out, but we, we did like, like what I thought was really good. Like I think we did like 1900 tickets which was a lot of tickets. Mm-hmm. And I remember the promoter was actually like bummed out. Like, yeah, you only did 1900. It's like, wow. <laughs> yeah. Like, you only did 1900. Like they really wanted it to be a, you know, a sold out show or, you know, and that was when I got into the, the point where it's like, but it's funny how the expectations can vary so much, you know, like, Oh, 1900 tickets on any day ever is, is great for our band, but you know, if, uh, I don't know, pick a, pick a band, Deftones go out and there's only 1900 people there. That might be like terrible. And there might be people losing hundreds of thousands of dollars, you know, um, on, on any given show. So yeah, I, I remember that one, that one specifically (laughs) being, um, (laughs) being, memorable I, yeah. I guess uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know it's, it's funny I think Silverstein we haven't taken we haven't had as many of those real crazy ones because we've never been the band that broke up and then came back and when you're the band that breaks up and comes back that's when you get the crazy money and to be honest that's why a lot of bands come back you know they'll I've heard of bands playing the Montebello uh, you know, rock fest in, up in, you know, Quebec, Canada mm-hmm. and reforming and like having six figures thrown at them when the most they ever got paid when they were together was probably no more than four or $5,000. And they're getting like a hundred, hundred grand to reform at a festival. So that's to me is the weirdest. No, totally. Especially where you're like, you know, the band never commanded anywhere near that sort of like guarantee perspective um, at all, like when they existed. And of course the nostalgia factor is a, is a huge thing, but yeah, that notion of like, you know, even on a smaller scale, like I know that, you know, there are many bands like, you know, the sort of local, like pay to play scene that exists in pretty much every city. Like I, I knew it existed, but like, it wasn't until I, you know, like when I started to play with Makoto where it was like, you know, we like there was a, a a quantifiable commodity that we brought to the table. The fact that like, you know, some people were like, oh, yes, like, you know, here's Ray from Taken's new band or whatever. And so like, you know, people will be curious and come out or whatever. But I just remember it's like these venues would approach us, these local venues and give us an absurd amount of money, like for a local show. It's like, hey, we'll give you guys fifteen hundred dollars to play like five minutes down the street. And it was like, what the heck? Like, I just hadn't experienced that before. It's like the most taken guy paid to play was like, you know, like maybe a thousand dollars. And that's if we're like, you know, headlining chain reaction, selling it out or whatever. But, um, I, I just, that notion of getting paid that much. But then once I understood the finances of it, I was like, 
oh, it's not like the venue is paying this. It's these bands that want to play with a quote unquote cool national headlining at whatever, whatever pitch they yeah. have, you know, it's like, I mean, Silverstein could 100% be the same thing where it's just like, if you guys wanted to be like, all right, you know what? Like we're done really actively touring. Like, you know, we could probably milk the Toronto scene for a good year. Not saying, <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? Where it's like people would like, oh dude, like, you know, Silverstein, we can play with Silverstein tonight. Like we have to sell a hundred tickets to play with them or whatever. Oh uh, yeah. No, we haven't done too much of that. I mean, there's, there's always, you know, local bands jumping on a tour package, you know, if there's a four or five band bill and then there's a local opener, the promoter stuck on there and, and made them sell 50 to a hundred tickets. I, I never liked that, but it, it definitely does exist. And it's something that you have to kind of live with sometimes, but yeah, that's funny. No, we, we've, we have an interesting, uh, scene, you know, here in Ontario where we can do things like that. And it, it, we have in the past, like, let's say we've been off for a little while and we're like, shit, you know, we need to like, just make some money to, to pay some bills. Um, you know, we have to pay our insurance for this, for this year or something like funny like that. And we'll do what's what we call the 401 tour. Because the 401 is um, not the 401k, but 401 is is the main highway <laughs> totally. that runs through Ontario. You know, kind of like the five in California. And uh, so our 401. So we'll, we'll go and we'll play. Like, all right, play, drive, drive like 45 minutes. You know, drive hour and a half. Play, like, and we'll do all these kind of like, you know, shitty shows. Uh, and sometimes it's like, okay, well, hey, you know, if if the bartender or sorry the bartender if the venue is selling drinks and 200 250 people come out that's a lot of drinks and you know if you're talking about a 20 dollars ticket that's decent amount of money coming in the door for us to drive whatever an hour or two from our house do the show go back sleep in our own beds i mean that can be pretty financially sound uh to, to do that and we have because we're smart you know? Right. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Yeah. You, you take. Right. That. I mean, people people shake their head and go, "Oh, what? They're playing Chatham, or they're playing uh, Waterloo, or or St. Catharines. Like, what are these places? Like, you know, well, they're not playing Toronto, or they're not playing London, or you know, these bigger cities that national bands go to. But it's like, dude, if if you could go, let, let's say you know you work at a Home Depot. But you could go to a Home Depot an hour away and someone's going to give you, I don't know, $5,000. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) You're going to say, oh, I don't know, man. That's that's like that's lame. That's not you know, that's not cool. I'm not going to do that. You know, come on. Yeah. And to your point, too, and I know you've experienced this where it's like sometimes the shows in the, you know, secondary or tertiary markets are better because kids are starved for entertainment and, you know, connection and like when you go to, you know, whatever, Wilmington, Indiana or, you know, whatever, name some random town, it, it like people are, you know, that much more excited about it because it's like, oh, what are you going to do on a Thursday night? I'm going to go to this show. It's like, who's playing? That doesn't matter. <laughs> it's just that's the thing to do, you know? Oh, totally. And and now that I'm a Windsor, Ontario resident, uh, I'm definitely seeing that where I'm like we had broken social scene playing the other day here. And I'm like, that's crazy. Broken social scene is playing. Like, maybe I'll go. And then I think to myself, why would I? Like, I'm, I'm from Toronto. I could have seen broken social scene. I think I've, I've seen them a couple of times, but it's like, 
all of a sudden I'm like so excited about some band that I don't, to be honest, don't really listen to, uh, you know, uh, coming through the town just because now I'm a part of this smaller community or music scene that's starved, you know, uh, who else, who else is coming? Three Days Grace is coming to the casino. I'm like, oh, that's sick. Three Days Grace. Then I'm like, wait a second. I fucking hate Three Days Grace. Why do I care about this band coming? So you make a, you make a great point. Uh, about you know about uh, about that and it's true. Well, I th- I mean I think any band that experiences the the touring that we have and did the you know first couple years of our bands where it's like you know when you're you know working with people just to get shows anywhere and you just want to play in front of some people you find that those memorable shows are in those places. It's not like you know I mean yes you're stoked to play New York City or you know L.A. or whatever right. but you do find that those you know those communities that spring up around small towns of like oh yeah no matter what you're going to have 50 kids that show up to the show you know in South Texas or whatever and it's yeah. like and those and those are the ones that you that are going to stick out in your head where it's like especially as you're like climbing up and trying to get people to like recognize you you know totally man and that was that we always looked forward to the small ones you know <laughs> totally you, you go you roll into cbgb in uh in new york city and and you know you're there and the bartender's a total asshole to you and yeah. you know suck as a prick and the promoters doesn't even care you're there and uh oh you guys are oh wait you're a you're a punk band oh okay cool whatever you roll into burlington iowa and it's like Oh my god! You guys are a punk band. That's so cool, right? Like, uh, uh, you know, everyone's so excited that you're there, uh, and and inevitably, sometimes in the early days, there were more people at the shows in, in Burlington, Iowa, just because the New York City, because there's just so much, so much less to do, and it's it, it was it really is funny. Yeah, you you and you could in you know Burlington, Iowa, you could legit go to the local mall. And like straight up advertise for your show, like just by simply hanging out at the mall because you looked different and people were like, what, what's up with these guys? And like, it's so, yeah, it is so interesting how that kind of, you know, the weirdness and the, you know, you don't look like you belong here will attract people to the thing. Like, yeah. oh, are you guys a band? Are, are you playing? Are you playing in town tonight? Oh, cool. I'll bring, I'll bring some of my friends. And it's like, wow, we just were killing time before the show. So like, thanks. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's always a funny moment too when you're at a truck stop in the middle of nowhere and they, someone sees the van and you know you always ah oh, y'all in a band right and so we used, to, we used to say we used to say we were Good Charlotte perfect because we knew they we knew they'd heard heard of Good Charlotte probably at the time and then we'd always say oh, Good Charlotte yeah I think my daughter listens to y'all and uh, yeah we used to do that oh that's the, that's perfect because the the science of that. Uh, is you have to think of a band that, is, like you said, is large enough where they may have potentially run across them at some point, but not large enough to where um, you know people will like automatically not believe you. Will be like, well, no, you, you're obviously not Pink Floyd or Metallica or whatever. <laughs> right, right, exactly. And, exactly yeah. and, then you, and you don't want to aim too low, where you're like, oh yeah, we're Silverstein. They're like, who? They're like, damn it, uh, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> and there's funny times too. Like, like I remember walking out of a out of a you know I've been sleeping in the back of the van, and I walk out and I'm wearing like skinny jeans and a studded belt and probably have some blonde streak in my hair and I'm some tight ass shirt with like fluorescent stuff on it. And I walk out and the sun's in my eyes, and this old man says to me, "Hey, y'all on a fishing expedition?" <laughs> like 
what? Look at me, dude. Yeah. No, we're not on a fishing expedition. <laughs> I, I could I be furthest from a fishing expedition, my friend. If you think this is the gear for a fishing expedition, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> that happens. So. Yeah. Uh, the last thing. The last thing I want to hit you with was the. Um, you know, clearly, as you have existed now, like you said, as you know, as a full time band for you know quite some time, and you know, you've been able to uh, you know afford some of the luxuries of like you were talking about. You know, not having to go back into a van, and you know, you guys have been uh, thrifty in regards to the way that you spend your money and your economical. Um, but I know that you undoubtedly still encounter those sort of business decisions that, uh, you know, kind of leave you guys either, you know, oh, like three of the guys want it, two of the guys don't or yeah. or flip it. Um, so what, what sort of decisions that you guys have to like really make now? Like, do you feel because of what you've experienced, you're better equipped or do you feel like you're still just those, you know, dumb 18 year old kids making uh, you know, newer decisions that are different than what you previously made, um, or is it some combo of both? I think it's it, you got to think about you know when you're headlining and stuff. That stuff's you know you know you're going to get paid and you know you're going to make money and that's going to be fine. Uh, and if you're doing festivals and stuff, you know you have to make sure you're going to make it work. And if you can't make it work financially, if you're going to either make very little money or a lot less money than, you know, let's say your own personal minimum wage that you require to pay your bills, then you have to look at what you're doing as, as an investment for a future, you know? Uh, and this happens a lot with certain festivals and stuff, you know, uh, in Europe, especially where one festival is like saying, Hey, you know, this is a cool hardcore festival and you can headline this and we're going to pay you a good amount of money. And then the next day you're going to play this huge festival with all these like indie rock bands and you're going to be on the hardcore stage, but you're going to get paid peanuts to be there, you know, and you have to, you know, uh, work that out to where financially you can do enough of the hardcore festivals that you can get paid and make it work. But then you can also go and do some of these other festivals to hopefully, you know, invest in the future and have more people see you and have the exposure um, you know, that you, that you need. And, um, the other thing is with, uh, support tours and it's the same thing. And I remember it was last year. It's funny. I'm bringing good Charlotte up again. We got offered a good Charlotte tour and it was across Canada, which is Canada is a really shitty place to tour because the cities are very, very far apart. And once you get to one end, well, you got to go back and there's nowhere else to play. Yep. So, so we had offered this good Charlotte tour and yeah, I didn't want to do it. Uh, Billy didn't want to do it. And Josh didn't care, which is typical of Josh. If anybody knows him <laughs> and, and Paul Mark was sort of on the fence. He wanted, you know, wanted to, to hear the reasons. And Paul really wanted to do it, really wanted to do it. Thought it was a good opportunity and everything. And the money was not great. So that was, that was probably most, that's the most recent recent thing where we had to decide, well, Hey, is getting into playing with good Charlotte, a band that I don't think we'd have any chance to play with 10 years ago. Is that a good move for us or not? And ultimately we decided we would do the tour, even though it was going to be financially a loss, probably probably was a financial loss, um, for that kind of exposure. And would we do it again? Well, I wouldn't do it again. 
Um, not that there's anything wrong with good Charlotte. They were lovely people. We had a great time and the shows were good, but I don't think we really got anything out of playing to 30 year olds, you know, mm-hmm. uh, screaming in their faces when all they wanted to hear was lifestyles, the rich and the famous, you know? So, yeah. So th- those, so those kinds of things, um, I guess this also goes to your question before about if we have any, you know, regrets or whatever, you know, so those kinds of things you have to wrestle with, like, okay, is this, is this going to make sense? And it's always great when you could do a support tour and get paid at the same time or a support tour that makes perfect sense. But, uh, it does happen a lot where you have to say, okay, is this exposure worth, you know, not making any money? And I think the reason we did the Good Charlotte Tour was because 10 years before, or I guess more than that now, we took a tour with Simple Plan in Europe. Uh, and again, it was like not a lot of money and it's, you know, going to Europe. So there's all those expenses of, of flights and, and everything else that you don't have when you're just doing, you know, for us, Canada. And that was really, really, really good for us. We, to this day, when we go to Europe, people say, oh, yeah, I saw you guys. First time I saw you guys was opening for Simple Plan. And, you know, I never knew your kind of music existed. So I think we thought that maybe that would happen again. A part of us thought that would happen with Good Charlotte and their younger fans. But it turns out that there aren't as many young Good Charlotte fans as we thought. Sure. And honestly, like anytime you reach those, those fork in the road moments where, you know, you, you're really hemming and hawing and having a lot of discussions about it and a lot of group texts about it and whatever. Right. Most of the time, the only way that you know is like when you actually walk into that door and then you have that experience and then you try to, you know, cause like if you're referencing a tour that you did 10 years ago where it was like, you know, as a pro where it's like, well, that kind of worked out for us, you know? And so like yeah. maybe this can, can resemble that. It's like, but you really truly won't know until you walk into that door and experience it and then be like, okay, well, you know, now that can be the anecdotal information that we use for the next, you know, five years or whatever. Oh, no, absolutely. And I think that that's something that always, you know, goes back. I mean, you just, you, you draw on your own experiences because the, the, this podcast that we're talking about, this is as close to a handbook as you're ever going to find. This is, this is, you know, there's nowhere you can read about what to do in these situations. You know, no one's written a book. There's no manual. So, you know, you, you trial and error and you go back and you draw on your own experiences and, you know, every band is different. Every, every, uh, everybody has a different experience with, with this kind of stuff. Oh, oh totally. And, and I always like it in people, you know, no, no matter how successful you are as a band or a creative person, you know, people will always look up, especially if you're older, people always look up to what you do and be like, Oh, can you give me advice? Can you like, tell me this thing? And you'd be like, right. well, yeah. How about you like fail miserably for a long time? Like suck at what you do for a long time. <laughs> and then like accidentally trip on, you know, like most of the successes that people have in, li- in their lives aren't because they're like insanely talented and like, you know, thread the needle, like are <laughs> super lucky. Like that's a rare occurrence. So it's like, yeah, <laughs> if you were to be like, all right, write me a, write me a battle plan on silver Sea. And it's just like, no, like that's impossible. I can't do that. I can offer general generic advice, but that's it. <laughs> oh, totally. And, and not to mention, it's funny when bands ask me specifically like, Hey, we're this new band and I, and what should we do? And I, I say, I don't fucking know. If you ask <laughs> in 2001, I knew I, I, I'd be able to tell you what to do in 2001, 2002. Right. But now a new artist starting out. Yeah. God, I would, I wouldn't even know where to begin, man. 
Totally. Yeah. It's, it's impossible. It's like, yeah, this is a completely different world, a completely different context. Like I'm not a child anymore. Like I can't, you know, I can't give you direction. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's just, it's just the music industry just changed so much. It's, it's unbelievable now. So yeah, for sure. I don't know. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah. Crazy. And it's ever, it's ever changing. It's, and in, in a couple of years, uh, it'll be, you know, it'll be even different. So you just got to try to stay on top of it. Yeah, exactly. Well, Shane, this has been super fun. I really, uh, yeah, I just always like, yeah, thanks, of course, man. <laughs> I, I, I know. I know. Yeah. Thanks so much for, uh, for having me. And, uh, I probably said too much, but Hey, that's the point of these things. <laughs> Oh my, wasn't that a doozy? Yes, that was. I really enjoyed that. I felt it was the most appropriate episode to kind of kick this series off with. And it just kind of, you know, sets the uh, sets the stage for all of the fun conversations I'll be bringing you over the course of the next month. And I promise you, one of them will be the the mailbag episode that I've been promising for quite some time. So I've got some really, really good questions that I'm going to dig myself into and hopefully be able to uh, explain some things to you and uh, answer some questions and provide some insights and all that other fun stuff. So, But next week is my friend, Wayne Pagini. He is a manager at uh, Fly South, Inter- or I think it's called Entertainment. Fly South, we'll call it. But, uh, you know, they manage really small bands like uh, Paramore and uh, Day to Remember and whatever. But he, he will introduce himself appropriately next week. But we talk about Rammstein. And Rammstein, you know, some of you may be like, Rammstein, why the hell are you going to talk about Rammstein? Like, that's that old random industrial band that was popular at one point. Well, let me tell you, they're still immensely popular. And let me tell you, they're probably one of the best live shows I've ever seen in my whole entire life. And he was working when the band initially broke here in the United States of America in the uh, mid to late 90s. And it's a he shares wild stories because, um, you know, granted, this was a, a much different music industry than we exist in now. But uh, there's just so much uh, information that he shares about what it's like to work at a record label when a record is like becoming successful in ways that nobody ever imagined. So really, really fun stuff. That is next week. And uh, yeah, until then, please be safe, everybody. You've been listening to the Jabberjaw Podcast Network, jabberjawmedia.com. Shh.